right? It, it's, it's both and. We don't want to take away from the rescuing of victims because that's incredibly important work, sure. incredibly difficult work. There's great organizations that are doing that work uh, and, and we collaborate with them often. The, the problem though with only focusing on rescuing a victim is that like you said, you create shelf space for more victims and there, there is essentially an infinite supply of victims for these human traffickers. So if you want to prevent human trafficking, and if you want to rescue victims, then you need to eliminate the common denominator in this equation, which is the human trafficker. You cannot have a human trafficking victim if you do not have a human trafficker. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. In this podcast, I'll be unraveling the stories of high performers across sports, business, and wellness. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Nick McKinley. Nick fuses counterintelligence methods with technology to solve big problems. One of those problems is human trafficking. By starting Deliver Fund in 2014, Nick started the first nonprofit organization to apply counterterrorism methodologies to fight human trafficking. They disrupted the human trafficking market by providing intelligence and specialized analytics about human trafficking activities to law enforcement authorities. Nick is also the CEO of Verify, a private intelligence and due diligence firm specializing in collecting, analyzing, and presenting intelligence so organizations can make confident decisions about key hires and investments. So, what makes Nick uniquely qualified to start and run these two organizations? Well, as an experienced special agent at the CIA and an Air Force pararescueman, Nick understands the ramifications of bad intelligence and the disastrous consequences of poorly researched decisions. In this interview, we get into Nick's time in the Air Force and the CIA, fighting human trafficking with Deliver Fund, Verify, and much more. And so, without further ado, my interview with Nick McKinley. So let's start this off at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Grew up in Billings, Montana, which is a, uh, a, pretty, a pretty cool place to be from. You know, you don't, when you're from small towns in Montana, you don't really, you don't quite realize how good you have it until you leave and you just can't wait to get out of there because it's a small town. And then yeah. after you've seen the rest of the world, you're like, you know what, it's, that's, that's a pretty great place. Interesting. Did you feel at all confined being in Montana or did you kind of like not really know any, know any better at that time? I didn't know any better. I mean, it's really, it's really the only thing that I knew. So, uh, you know, I wanted to go see the rest of the world, so to speak. Uh, but I wouldn't say it was, it, it was more out of curiosity than it was out of being confined. I see. Okay. In a, uh, in a video interview that I watched you do, you mentioned how you've had this sense of service uh, from a really young age. Where do you think that sense of service comes from? You know, I don't know where it comes from. I think at a certain point, it's probably just God-given. You know, growing up in a place like Montana, growing up uh, in the household I grew up in, 
you know, great parents that were always pushing the, you know, kind of service before self mentality. Okay. Uh, I think, I think it just kind of rubs off on you and it just becomes who you are. Yeah. And what did your parents do for work? Uh, my mom was a teacher and my dad was in the oil industry. Interesting. Okay. Was there any, cause I know you served in the air force as, as a pararescueman. Was there any military mm-hmm. f- history in the family? No, I actually think I'm the first one to, uh, to serve in the military. My, my grandfather did a stint in the uh, merchant Marines in the, uh, during world war two. I don't know if that's military or not. I don't think it is, but, uh, but nope, I'm the, the first one to first one to serve. Interesting. What do you think sparked that interest? The challenge. It wasn't so much for me about being in the military as it was specifically wanting to go do pararescue. Uh, in fact, originally I had, I had actually gone in the Marine Corps recruiting station to be uh, to look at force recon because I saw a, a recruiting poster of this you know force recon guy you know crawling through the bushes all camoed out and I was like that looks cool I want to go do that <laughs> and then from the Marine Corps office ended up kind of getting tagged by the, uh, the Navy recruiters. Like, Oh, you don't want to go do that. You want to go be a seal. And then showed me some seal stuff. I was like, that looks really cool, but I want to be a medic in the seal team. It's like, yeah, we can do that. And then the air force recruiter was like, Hey, uh, did I hear you say you wanted to be a medic in the seal teams? I got this other thing over here. Uh, and so, you know, when he told me, uh, you know, when I, I watched a little recruiting video, he told me about it. And then I got to, uh, I, I got to see and, and did a little bit of my own research about how challenging the program was. And uh, in fact, the recruiter the whole time was like, well, you're probably not going to make it. You're probably not going to do this. Um, so you need to pick a second fallback job. And I was like, oh, well, the probably the best way to get me to do something is to tell me I can't. Hmm. Interesting. So it, it sounded like it was kind of that perfect intersection of the two for you in terms of being like that sense of service that you mentioned as well as having that challenge. Right. Yeah. So you become a pararescueman. Um, maybe just for the people listening, provide a quick overview of what that job is. PJs are the air forces ground special operations component that usually either embeds with other special operations teams or um, conducts their own organic missions to, to essentially get good people and expensive stuff out of bad places. What were some of the places that you deployed to and how many years did you spend in the military? I spent 10 years in pararescue uh, with a follow-on year in the reserves and deployed to Iraq, you know, and all the areas around Iraq and the Iraq war uh, back back before Gulf War II when it was Southern Watch and then, you know, into, uh, into Gulf War II. And then, um, you know, parts of Africa, uh, where else? That was pretty much it. Okay. And did you, did you travel like a lot around the world before you were in the military or was this experience of being deployed to all these areas, was that like your first real kind of, international travel experience? Oh, uh, military was my first international travel. I 
I'd never, uh, never had a passport, never been outside the, well, other than maybe, you know, quick family trip into Canada or Mexico. Uh, but otherwise I'd never been, never been out of the United States and never been overseas. And how, how was that experience like? I wouldn't say it, it's, it was, you know, really a common experience because I was, you know, I think my first trip overseas was to Kuwait as an example, you know, back in uh, the, the Southern watch days. And, and so, you know, most people are going to Paris on vacation or, you know, they're, they're backpacking around Europe as a college kid. And here I was, you know, going to Kuwait uh, we were there specifically for a, a combat operation and to, you know, to cover the air assets going into Iraq for the combat operation. So <laughs> I would say it's probably a little bit different than most people's. <laughs> right. Was the, uh, was being able to travel internationally, was that like a pull for you in any way in terms of wanting to go into the military? I don't think it was, uh, internationally just happens to be where the work is. Uh, one of the reasons that I liked pararescue specifically was because you had a stateside mission and an overseas mission, right? So a peacetime, you know, civilian rescue mission and a combat rescue mission. So if you look at, you know, the rescues that are done in the state of Alaska by the, uh, um, by the, I, I believe it's a guard or maybe it's a reserve, but either way, by the, the PJ team that's in Alaska, uh, it, they do they do probably uh, uh, you know eighty percent of their of their missions are probably civilian rescue missions. So they're just being busy doing real world stuff all the time, even when you were stateside. That was one of the things that I liked about pararescue. So it wasn't about the it wasn't about the overseas. Uh, uh, you know, travel to exotic locales or any, anything like that. It was just, right. uh, there's work to be done and the mission was global. And so I wanted to be, I wanted to be part of that. Got it. Interesting. Were there any specific takeaways you had around the importance of intelligence while you were in the military or did that interest in intelligence not come until you joined the CIA? No, I, I really started to pay attention to the intelligence piece. So uh, I'm just kind of a person who's always paying attention to what other people are doing. And, uh, you know, I would go talk to the uh, intelligence folks in, in my unit, uh, the ones that are responsible for supporting my unit with intelligence, for supporting the helicopter unit with intelligence. Uh, one of my roommates was a intelligence analyst when I was in the Air Force. So it was something that that I just I just took notice of, and I started taking interest in it after I'd been in pararescue for a few years. And it's like, and and I started to understand that the you know intelligence is about is about preventing wars, or at least keeping them as short as possible. Where you know the military and pararescue is like you're 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 being called in when things have gone wrong, or when the intelligence process has either failed or needs to be escalated. And so that's when I, I really decided that I, I really wanted to, to get some experience on both sides of the fence. And I had the, the experience in pararescue, you know, did that for a decade and then decided I wanted to, uh, wanted to go try the intelligence game for a little while and, and see, see what that was like and, and start to execute on that. And 
that it also, you know, when I came into the military in the early nineties, right. Pre September 11, the only people who were really doing cool stuff, right. PJs were doing some, we were doing some cool stuff, um, overseas, but most of it was being done within the, the intelligence community per se. And, and that was predominantly within JSOC and, and specialized intelligence units within JSOC. And then, uh, obviously the civilian intelligence entities, predominantly the CIA and the DIA. So I just decided that, that, I mean, that sounded like a good, a good transition and a good next thing to do. So I, I wanted to give it a try. Interesting. So since there were no, I guess, uh, I don't know, like quote unquote real wars happening, I guess at the time, the intelligence communities were a bit more active, like say, like, I guess for an example for people, it'd be like, the cold war where there much there wasn't any like real active you know fighting combat going on but there's tons of work going on within the intelligence community um if i have that right yes exactly there there the intelligence community is always active it doesn't matter what's going on the intelligence community is active um it's just a matter of where they shift their resources so if you have wars going on they're obviously going to shift their resources towards those wars if there's no wars going on they're going to shift those resources towards you know trying to prevent those wars uh but there's there's always work and there's always things going on and and so to me that that was a little bit of a draw and the other piece of it was you know when you when you go into into a combat zone you know, if you think, you know, like when I was in Afghanistan or Iraq, you end up with these, you know, you're, you're with these large teams and there's lots of, you know, belt fed machine guns and grenade launchers and, you know, fighters and, and cast platforms and aerial surveillance and great, crazy comms, communications infrastructure. And a lot of the intelligence world was being by yourself, maybe with some other, maybe with one other person. Um, maybe upwards of, you know, in some of these countries, you might have a grand total of say 12 people on a team, you know, that was massive, you know, that's a massive intelligence team. Uh, a lot of times it's just you and one other person and, you know, you got a, a couple of handguns uh, between you and some cell phones and, and that's it. And you're just trying to live by, uh, you know, <laughs> by my second rule of operations, which is don't get caught. <laughs> Right. Interesting. Okay. And do I have it right that after the military or after you serve as a PJ, you become a personnel recovery and austere due diligence consultant? Uh, that's reading that after your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, so I, I spent a couple of years really helping Fortune 10 uh, investment banks and companies get their really investment bankers who are making bad decisions um, out of out of places where they were trying to do investment due diligence. So let's say you've got an investment bank that wants to invest in a, uh, a cobalt mine in a, a country that's a little unstable. And then in the middle of their, their due diligence process, uh, the country destabilizes and ends up in say a military coup. Well, now how do you get this, you know, very bright investment banker who's very good at investment banking, but not really take, not really capable of dealing with that situation? How do you get them out? And so that's, uh, that's, I kind of fell backwards into that work for a couple of years before I, before I joined the CIA. 
Interesting. So was it more about uh, preparing the investment bankers for like the visits, like to that like cobalt mine, or is it like like you're actually like rescuing? Um, like oh no, we were rescuing. <laughs> no, oh, wow. it was it it was it was a lot of uh, consulting with their chief security officers and various folks in the industry. Uh, you know, very similar to uh, what a company called Red Point Resolutions does right now. Uh, so so consulting with them, helping them to understand, you know, the risks, uh, helping them to prepare for those. But then ultimately, when something went wrong, and things go wrong a whole lot more than you would think that they would, uh, actually providing the uh, everything from the logistics support to the planning support to the personnel support to, uh, to, to get them back and get them out. Yeah, I had no idea like, that there was a need for this or maybe as big of a need for for this type of work as when I went to read it on your LinkedIn profile, like that this stuff actually happens with these investment banks. Like that's just. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, most people think that I'm an American citizen. So if I travel overseas, you know, the government and something happens, the U S government, you know, they've got my back and they're going to come get me. And that's just not the case. Uh, the government does not have any, they don't have any responsibility for you. Uh, once you leave U.S. soil. Now, the government will do what they can when they can, but obviously it's unrealistic to expect the United States government to be able to provide a safety and security infrastructure around every single U.S. citizen that travels overseas. Right. Interesting. And so how does this experience then lead you to joining the CIA? Uh, Those, I don't actually know exactly how those dots uh, how those dots got connected. Uh, I was responsible for um, leading an operation that uh, evacuated the first 27 Americans out of Lebanon in 2006-2007 timeframe uh, when the Israeli you know Hezbollah war happened um, in the Taranak Farms area. And so I was responsible for the for that um, and what I know is that I was just doing my job. And then I got a call from a uh, recruiter from the CIA uh, saying, you know, we have, a, we have a special project that we'd be interested in you uh, taking a look at. And obviously, uh, I wasn't going to let that opportunity pass up. It was something that I was interested in anyway. Uh, it had just kind of fallen off my radar for a short period of time. And, but it was still something that I had planned on pursuing and it kind of ended up coming to me instead. Uh, So I ended up pulling on that thread and a a little less than a year later, I was on a uh, uh, covert action platform um, being run out of a uh, uh, Middle Eastern country. Interesting. Um, And maybe just before the people listening, provide a quick overview of the CIA and maybe more importantly, how it differs between how it differs from the FBI. Sure. Um, so the the CIA, obviously, the Central Intelligence Agency, the FBI, being the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the example that I like to use is September 11th, right? So you have intelligence is supposed to prevent September 11th happened. But once you have an event like September 11th, now it's all about investigating and figuring out who done it. Now there is obviously a pretty big overlap to that diagram, but 
you know, the CIA doesn't go arrest people, right? The CIA tries to figure out what people are doing and, and prevent them from doing it or, or, um, or, or exert influence to maybe change their direction where the FBI is, is investigating crimes that are committed. Right. So, so a good way to, to really oversimplify the whole process is one is pre-crime, one is post-crime, but obviously there's a lot of collaboration in the middle. Right. And is, is it true that the CIA is more focused on like foreign affairs and foreign intelligence, whereas the FBI is more domestic focused? Uh, absolutely. Uh, obviously, the FBI does have a presence overseas and, and does some work overseas, uh, specifically around you, you know their their charter and what they're supposed to do. But the F the CIA is is predominantly and, and almost solely focused overseas. And Executive Order One Two Three 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 actually prohibits the CIA from collecting information on U.S. citizens. So. The CIA doesn't really have a mission, so to speak, on U.S. soil. Its 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 focus is is overseas and and on, you know, figuring out who is trying to hurt us over here. Right, right. Okay, and then here's where it gets interesting, or perhaps not interesting, uh, as much as you can tell us. What was your role in the CIA? I was part of a full spectrum intelligence operations unit that was responsible for conducting info, uh, conduct, conducting operations in uh, austere and non-permissive environments. So essentially, if it was a really dangerous place and intelligence operations had to happen in that really dangerous place, my unit was responsible for uh, facilitating the conducting of those intelligence operations. And then we were also responsible for providing uh, operational support to covert action programs. Okay. And you've mentioned um, the phrase or term covert action a couple times. What is What does that mean? So the Central Intelligence Agency's job is mandated by the Office of the President, and not only is its job to uh, you know, collect, analyze, disseminate uh, intelligence to policymakers so they can make you know, the best policy decisions for the country, but the CIA's job is also to conduct covert action at the direction of the president. And so the co think of covert action as the, the hidden hand of uh, uh, of the government, right? The government, the CIA, uh, the government wants something to get done overseas, but we don't necessarily want to be the ones to do it, or we want to keep our involvement uh, out of it, then that's where a covert action finding comes in. Very mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> most of it is not as cool as you think. <laughs> yeah, that, that's- Some that's of it is, here. but most, yeah, yeah. most of it isn't. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, in another video interview I watched you do, um, you mentioned that you felt like your life, <clears throat> excuse me, that your life was on the line weekly. Did you really? Look, that was really true? Like it was that, I guess, dangerous when, when you're in that, um, I guess, role? In the role I was in, yes. Uh, when, when I was at work, when I was overseas, uh, you know, embedded in a, in, in a station or a base, Absolutely. Uh, and it's not necessarily because the, uh, 
it's not necessarily because you know there's bombs going off constantly or something like that. Uh, in many cases, they were. Uh, obviously, we are operating in the same exact environments uh, that the U.S. military were, and they're in, you know, big up armored vehicles, uh, and we're in, you know, thin skin, you know, normal cars just like everybody else, uh, rolling through the traffic just like everybody else. So. So that was obviously a, a large part of our, our ability to stay safe was the fact that we weren't in these big targets uh, rolling down the street. But at the same time, uh, when people figured out who you were, and at the end of the day, if I grow a beard and dye my hair and you know grow it out, and well, I look like a blue-eyed white guy from Montana, right? I mean, <laughs> just with a beard. Uh, so it's yeah. not like, you know, it's not like you can hide when you get real close to people, you know, it's everything from your mannerisms to literally the way that you walk, uh, you know, locals can tell that somebody is a foreigner, especially in those environments. So being able to keep our ability to keep, to keep safe was based on our ability not to get caught. But if you do get caught, then things get things would get very sporty very quickly. So it, it's at the risk. It's that the the consequence was extremely high if something went wrong. But things right. rarely actually went wrong. Right, right. And so, would you like for the in order to not be caught? Would you like work on? I guess like your mannerisms or like perhaps like a, how you look like a disguise in order to prevent being caught? As close as we are, no amount of working on mannerisms or disguises will keep you from getting caught if you are not, uh, if you are not from that area. So for us, uh, there was just a, a whole host of tradecraft techniques that we were taught that we used, uh, which you know have been developed over the last fifty plus years and uh, are are highly successful. Okay, interesting. Why are you as close as someone is going to get to the real Jack Ryan? Uh, because Amazon made me say that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so the the real Jack Ryan doesn't exist. Um, I'm no closer to a, the Jack Ryan character than is uh, really anybody else. Um, you, you know, referring to the, uh, I assume you're referring to the the Amazon uh, yes. Vice media video where they they said, you know, where they they dubbed me the real Jack Ryan. Uh, you know, the real Jack Ryan has a PhD from an Ivy League institution and. Uh, is not only a brilliant savant, but also knows how to fight and also knows how to shoot and also is a, is a military veteran. And, and that's just not reality. The reality is um, when the OSS was around in World War II and you had, uh, it, you know, which is the precursor to both the U.S. Special Operations Community and the CIA. So it's, it's, really, it, it's really both. Um, the OSS uh, liked to say that they were looking for PhDs who could win bar fights. Well, um, I worked with lots of PhDs at the CIA, and I'll tell you, not a single one of them could win a bar fight. Uh, however, my team was full of people who could win bar fights, and not a single one of us had a PhD. So, really, <laughs> it, you know, to you know that that larger than life character that is a Jack Ryan or a Jason Bourne or a J or a James Bond, we find them entertaining because they are just that. They are entertaining. Right. They're about as far away from reality as you can get 
because very, very, very few people, if any, have not only the time, but the capacity to, you know, be, be everything to everyone. All right. I appreciate the, the candor there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess, uh, and on that note, do you watch or like, have you watched the TV shows Homeland and Jack Ryan? And if so, like, what's your reaction to them as someone who's been in the CIA? So a uh, little secret here. I haven't owned a TV for al- almost 20 years. Oh, wow. uh, so no, um, <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm familiar with them. Lots of people have asked me about them. I understand that the, uh, um, kind of the lead case officer in, in Homeland is a little bit nuts. Uh, that's probably a little bit accurate. Um, the, uh, the gun guys in, uh, in those shows uh, stand out too much. That's probably pretty accurate. So I would say if, if, if anybody's watching those shows and they, they, they see things and they're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. That's probably not true. But if they find things where they're like, wow, that seems a little silly, that probably actually is true. Okay. Interesting. Um, why, why haven't you owned a TV in 20 years? You know, uh, I just, uh, I was moving and I sold my TV and, uh, I kind of for, for years kind of prided myself and that I could fit everything I owned in the back of my SUV and, uh, just never ended up buying another one. And then realized over a period of time that I just, I was never that person who sat down to just, you know, surf some channels for an hour and then ended up falling asleep on the couch. Uh, I just felt like, you know, TV uh, was something that really cut into my productivity and my ability to accomplish the things that, and the goals that I'd set out for myself. So, so I just never bought another one and, uh, and, and still have it. Wow. So not a single TV show in over 20 years? Uh, oh, yeah. So when you're deployed, I mean, you're watching TV shows in the team room because that's just the kind oh, of thing yeah. that you do. Okay. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, it was, never, it was never the like, you know, the spy shows. It was, the son, it was Sons of Anarchy and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I guess on a, on a different note, um, talk to me about what your experience was like in handling personal, personal relationships outside of work while working for an organization, like as secretive as, as a CIA. Oh, that's a dumpster fire. Uh, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to like, so I was single, uh, for most of my time at the CIA, I was, you know, trying to date. Uh, there's, there's really was no information on me online, which obviously is kind of a red flag these days. <laughs> you're either 70 or you're up to something. Uh, so that was, that was a problem. Uh, your, your cover story is, is pretty thin. And so if somebody really starts researching your cover story, which is, you used to be difficult to do. Now it's very, it's pretty easy to do. They were, they were able to see that things didn't necessarily always add up and, so rather than just kind of try to continue the story, you just, you know, kind of on, on to the, on to the next date. So, uh, I mean, it, it's just, it's super difficult. Uh, I was gone, uh, you know, 10 months a year, probably at least, uh, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more, but you're just constantly gone. Uh, I know my, my wife, 
uh, when we met, I was at the CIA. Um, uh, we went a six month period where she saw me for about 10 days over six months. And, uh, you know, we, we were able to just kind of keep up the relationship, obviously, thanks to modern technology and, you know, FaceTime and, you know, uh, internet based technologies. But, but for the most part, I mean, she, she didn't even physically, you know, wasn't in the same place as me for a while. And for, I, th- I want to, I think for the entirety of that six month period, uh, I was actually, um, I was still under a cover. So I hadn't broken cover to her. So, so she, she still thought that I was who my cover story said. So like a, like an alias, like a different name too. No, same name. Okay. Same name, just <laughs> different job. Okay. <laughs> so same name, different job. There go, there go different excuses for being gone so much. <laughs> right. Interesting. That's just such a strange experience. It's just essentially like <laughs> having to lie to someone for, for that long. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you know, and then if, if when I broke cover to her, if she would have been like, oh my gosh, you've been lying to me this whole time. I'm out of here. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't blame her for that. But instead, you know, her response was really, <laughs> you know, cause <laughs> obviously most people are, are, are going to be like, wow, this is the first time I've heard this story. Great excuse though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Interesting. Um, do you miss the job at all? Every day. It's, really? yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a fun job. It's a, you know, good group of people that I worked with. Great mission is it, it was like, like most jobs in the government that involve any type of, uh, of action oriented, uh, missions. Uh, it was 80 to 90% boredom followed by, you know, 5% wondering if you were going to get out of the situation and maybe 5% sheer terror. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was a, it was a really, really good job. And, and the CIA is a very high bar, um, by the CIA's own public numbers, they accept about 1% of the people, uh, that make it into their application process. So I don't know exactly what those numbers are. I don't, you know, what they're looking for. I've never, uh, but you know, I, I was never allowed to see those shiny rocks. You know, why did, why did I get in, but other people didn't, I have no idea. Uh, but it's a, it, it's a cool place to work. It's got a high bar and it's got a lot of, uh, a lot of really great people working there. A lot of patriots who are trying to keep this country safe. Awesome. And it sounds like your role, like it was, you know, was very, very intense. And as you said, required a very, very high bar. What were some of the things that you did to optimize your performance um, in your, in that role as a, in the CIA to make sure you're just on point? Well, it, it's not necessarily that the role was so intense. It had its very intense moments, um, but the training bar was, was pretty high. Most of the people that I served with uh, and, and, I would say to the tune of over 90% of them were all former special operators. So they were either PJs, combat controllers, Navy SEALs, uh, force reconnaissance Marines or MARSOC or Raiders, whatever they're calling themselves today. Um, uh, you know, there was a few army Rangers, a lot of special forces guys, but I would say the predominant, uh, group of people that we had inside were, were SEALs. 
so the so the bar the bar was high, um, and even then we had some of these former special operators who were coming from pretty robust backgrounds failing out of our training, you know, and that was anything from marksmanship to decision making to just you know doing dumb stuff like everybody does. So, uh, so so really the bar was high, so that when the when things did go wrong you had a group of people who could really handle any of it so we we dealt with all of our own obviously our own security issues we dealt with uh, all the communications issues all the medical issues uh you know we were essentially self-contained teams capable of executing pretty much any intelligence operation anywhere in the world because you would you had such a diverse background of people in that unit that there was always somebody who who had some experience with whatever it was you were trying to accomplish. I see. Okay, that makes sense. And broadly speaking, like, what are your biggest takeaways from from working in the CIA for all those years? Uh, the biggest takeaway is it's not what people think, right? I like to say, you know, the Jason Bourne movies are not follow documentaries. Uh, they are. They are as Hollywooded up as you can get. Uh, Jason Bourne is not real. He does not exist. Um, and, and that also is important because for people who think the CIA is a bunch of Jason Bournes running around, it's like, you know, really put on your critical thinking cap and, and think about that. Jason Bourne wasn't very good at his job. He's always getting caught. Uh, <laughs> he's always getting into gunfights. He's always getting into fights, right? He's, he's getting caught. It's the, the reason why a lot of the job at the agency, even when you were, even when you were operational as much as, as my unit was, it, it can be pretty monotonous because you're really good at what you do. And that's really the biggest takeaway um, from both the military special operations community and the Central Intelligence Agency is, you know, when people are very, very good at what they do and they're operating at world-class levels, uh, you'd be amazed at what you can accomplish, especially when you start surrounding them with a bunch of other people that are operating out at world-class levels. And so the, the focus then becomes, how do you get better from a performance perspective? Well, for most of the people coming from the military into the CIA, that meant more study and probably some more academic things that they that they hadn't previously paid attention to for people who were strictly, you know, kind of born and raised in the, in the CIA who then found themselves in a war zone uh, surrounded by military personnel. That meant that they had to, you know, maybe get in the gym and, and uh, learn a thing or two about the firearms that they were carrying. So it, it, it really right. meant that you kind of had to do both. And I always looked at performance as, you you are a combination of mind body and soul so if that is true then to be strong in body and weak in mind is is not to be a high performer you need to have you know you need to be strong in body mind and soul interesting yeah it's yeah it's funny because whenever like you hear the news about like the SEAL teams or something about the CIA, it's usually when something goes wrong and not when something goes right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You, uh, uh, you, your failures are very public and all of your wins are celebrated in silence. Yeah. Very interesting.
Awesome. So shifting gears, how net, shifting gears now to uh, to deliver fund. Um, so I guess why why do you leave the CIA and when does the idea come to start deliver fund? So I actually left the CIA to start fighting fraud through both deliver fund and verify. And okay, uh, when you are doing when you're doing counterterrorism counter narcotics operations, which every single one of the operations that I did for the most part um, with, with a few exceptions uh, at the CIA were either counterterrorism or counter narcotics related. Uh, you don't do that work. If you're paying attention, you don't do that work and, and not bump into the human trafficking issue. And, and it's, it's pretty constant because human trafficking is such a large issue. Well, I always assumed that somebody had the ball on that issue, right? We've got a Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, yet alcohol, tobacco, and firearms are all legal, yet we have an entire government entity to the tune of billions of dollars focused on fighting it. We have a Drug Enforcement Administration. 90% of, of, of drugs are legal, yet we have an entire organization to the tune of tens of billions of dollars focused on fighting it. 100% of human slavery is illegal. And yet who's got the ball on that issue, right? Homeland, Homeland Security is doing what they can. Department of Justice is doing what they can. Uh, you know, different entities are trying to do what they can. But really, there is no centralized brain, there is no central point of contact for fighting human trafficking. And there really needed to be and so I left the CIA. Uh, that was one of my projects was to start that. Okay. And how does it, how does Deliver Fund stand today? And like, what does it look like? Uh, it's been successful beyond uh, what I could have imagined and it's growing and it's continuing to do incredible work, uh, right? As an organization, when I say an organization, I'm not just talking about, you know, the people who are employees of Deliver Fund and, you know, contractors at Deliver Fund. I'm not just talking about those folks. Uh, I'm talking about everybody who's involved with Deliver Fund. So we have a pool of thousands of donors, as an example, who are truly the lifeblood of the organization. They're the ones that, that, that enable this work to happen. Uh, and without them, the whole team dissolves. Uh, we have software developers who are breaking into new grounds in software development and doing things that have never been done before in the history of the world in the fight against human trafficking. Uh, in just a, a short number of years, we've managed to build the largest and cleanest human trafficking database in existence. Uh, you know, those types of things are incredibly cool to see it happen. So, so it, the organization, the entity is, is, is accomplishing things that are, are so much larger than the sum of its parts, thanks to the donors and the people who have, have taken on this, uh, this mission as a full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And I've seen some of the numbers on the human trafficking human trafficking industry, and it's pretty pretty staggering. But I'll kind of let you take the ball here. So, like, what's the state of the human trafficking industry currently in the U.S.? Like, how big is it? Is it growing, et cetera? So the numbers are are 
this is an underground economy, right? The, the human trafficking economy is. So anybody who says they have good numbers on, on human trafficking, it's just not true. Uh, so I don't so much like to get into the, uh, the statistics around human trafficking as in like how many human traffickers are there, right? Uh, but what we we do have some indicators, uh, and one of the indicators okay. that that I think gives us the best snapshot comes from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, phenomenal organization. Uh, and if it were not for them, uh, the missing kids issue would be would be significantly uh, bigger than it is in this country. Uh, they found that over a five year period, they had an eight hundred and forty six percent increase in tips related to child sexual exploitation and child trafficking. So think about that. Jeez. You know, what if you had a portfolio that in five years, uh, an investment portfolio that in five years grew by 846%? It's never happened. Uh, you know, what if your company grew by 846% in five years? It would probably fall in on itself because it would, it, it would be growing <laughs> too fast. And yet, just one indicator of how big the human trafficking market is. And this is, this is the human trafficking market only in respect to, uh, to child sexual exploitation and child trafficking. This doesn't include, so, so right, 18 and under, this doesn't include you know, 20 year old college girls who are being trafficked. So just that one sliver of a snapshot in five years in, increased by 846%. Uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children estimates that one in four, uh, one in four missing children are actually trafficked. So if 25% of missing children are trafficked, that equates out to about 100,000 children a year. And again, we're just talking about children. Now let's start taking migrant workers who are trafficked, and uh, right? So the labor trafficking issue and then the commercial sexual exploitation issue that has largely been driven by the opiate epidemic. And now you're adding the economic issues associated with COVID on top of that. Uh, so you start to see how this becomes a really big snowball really fast. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. And what, what do you think is driving that growth in the, in the industry or some of the factors? The smartphone. So the adoption of mobile internet-based technologies is almost a one-to-one -one correlation with the growth of the commercial exploitation, commercial sexual exploitation and human trafficking markets. Wow. And is the industry, human trafficking industry, uh, similar to like any other major, major industry in the sense of like, you have like the really big players and then maybe like a lot of small players? No. Uh, so human trafficking is, and, and this is organized crime in general these days tends to follow, follow this. Um, there are obviously exceptions, but for the most part, this tends to be what I like to call a loose affiliation of like minds. Uh, so I know lots of pararescuemen because I was a pararescuemen. I know lots of CIA people because I was in the CIA. Um, right? I'm not in charge of any of them. None of them are in charge of me. It's the same thing in the human trafficking industry. It's human traffickers, no other human traffickers. They coordinate with other human traffickers. They share best practices with other coordinate with other human traffickers. They compete with other human traffickers. 
and they all coordinate with the underground economy writ large, you know, for weapons dealers and document document dealers and uh, money launderers, you know, all of the services that allow the underground economy to exist. Interesting. And for people listening, what are some of the signs that like people should be aware of and should look out for in regards to like spotting a potential human trafficker or like a trafficking operation? So spotting a human trafficker uh, is going to be that, that's that's not really something you can kind of train the public to to see. Uh, but spotting a human trafficking victim uh, is something you can definitely train the public to see, and and that is okay. predominantly somebody who doesn't have agency. Right, so so somebody who doesn't seem to have control of themselves, uh, right? So if you have a you know twenty year old woman on an airplane who won't look at anybody, and uh, you know the when the stewardess asks her, you know what she would if she would like a, a drink or you know peanuts if they're still doing that on airplanes right these days, <laughs> um, yeah, you know you've got her trafficker will answer for her. Right. So so the trafficker has somebody completely under control. And that is really the key um, in identifying a human trafficking victim as somebody who does not have agents, personal agency. Uh, they don't seem to have the ability to uh, to make their own decisions. Uh, and they're and then there's a, a there's got to be a, a, a handle. So so some type of control. Right, so that human trafficker is going to be using force, fraud, or coercion in only in order to, uh, in order to control that human trafficking victim. Okay, I see. To solve this problem, it's not. It's more about catching the human trafficker than it is about rescuing victims, right? Because once you rescue a victim, it just creates space for a new victim. Right. It, it's it's both and we don't want to take away from the rescuing of victims because that's incredibly important work, sure. incredibly difficult work. There's great organizations that are doing that work uh, and, and we collaborate with them often. The, the problem though, with only focusing on rescuing a victim is that, like you said, you create shelf space for more victims and there, there is essentially an infinite supply of victims for these human traffickers. So if you want to prevent human trafficking, and if you want to rescue victims, then you need to eliminate the common denominator in this equation, which is the human trafficker. You cannot have a human trafficking victim if you do not have a human trafficker. So let's remove the human trafficker from that equation and not just rescue the victims they have, but prevent all of the future victims that they would potentially create. Right, right. Got it. And what are what are the different ways people can support Deliver Fund? The biggest way to support Deliver Fund is uh, by going to deliverfund.com forward slash donate and partnering with us in this fight. Uh, you know, nobody wants to wants to talk about money or resources, but the reality is that's what it takes in order to fight human trafficking in the United States. Uh, you know, dollars are like bullets in this fight. So, uh, so donating to deliver fund, uh, helping other people understand that there's hope we're out there. We're doing this work. 
Uh, we're doing it uh, at a pretty big scale already. We're working with over 70 law enforcement agencies across the United States, but we need to turn that into 140. And then we need to turn that into 280. So, so really scaling out the deliver fund capability through in terms of both resources and in terms of, of messaging, you know, helping people understand uh, and that could even be going to our store and, you know, buying a deliver fund t-shirt, wearing it around. So when people ask you what that is, you, you can tell them about it. Uh, that, that, those are the biggest ways really to help deliver fund and to help out in the fight against human trafficking. Awesome. What's your ultimate vision for deliver fund? Our goal for deliver fund is to create uh, a platform that reduces human trafficking by 80% in a five-year period once we reach our proper levels of funding. Awesome. So, and that, so some, pretty, some pretty audacious goals, uh, but you know, I like to put it in terms of SpaceX, right? Everybody told Elon Musk what he was doing was crazy and it couldn't be done, yet he accomplished in less than a decade what NASA couldn't accomplish in 50 years with trillions in funding. And yet Elon Musk did it for pennies on the dollar. Uh, so, and the reason he was, the reason he is where he is now is because he started. He started towards that mission and towards that goal. And he didn't necessarily know exactly how, what it was going to look like when he got there, but he knew where the top of the mountain was and what success looked like. And that's where we are at Deliver Fund. We know where the top of the mountain is. We know what success looks like. And we are, we are pushing forward towards that goal. Awesome. So, so when do you get the idea to start Verify and, and why start it while you're also working on Deliver Fund? So I, I started, uh, I started Deliver Fund uh, because when I got out, I really needed, uh, you know, obviously I, I needed to earn a living, but I kept getting called by people saying, you know, Hey, I got this problem. Can you, can you help me? Um, and I'm talking, I'm not talking like, you know, my grandma calling me, I'm talking about billionaires and venture capitalists and people with an, an incredible amount of resources who were being defrauded and didn't know what to do about it. And so it originally got in, that's how I got into the work was I started, uh, I started working for other companies as a consultant and a contractor. And then I, and then I just started my own company. Uh, which had another name before Verify. We just rebranded uh, in 2019 as Verify. But I started doing this work and, and, and I, I had always just assumed that there was a solution for corporate fraud. It was, it was easy for an investor to, to push a button and figure out whether or not the person they were investing in was, was real. And you don't see it a lot in the news because people don't like to talk about it. Uh, venture firms, private equity firms, banks, they don't want people to know that they were defrauded, obviously, because that hurts their brand, but it happens all the time. So, uh, and, and that's a problem that we've solved for some very, very big names uh, on some of who our clients are. So like household recognizable names of banks and, and various uh, investment entities. So, so for me, it was more of just taking what I knew, which came from the counterintelligence world. Uh, and really all counterintelligence is, is fraud mitigation. 
right? Counterintelligence is trying to find spies. They're trying to keep spies out. Other countries are trying to send their spies to go collect your information or, or go steal secrets from the CIA, uh, right? Those are frauds. And the CIA has a very good way that they train you to figure out who's real and who's not. So we built a whole company around that. And so far, um, it, it's been very successful thanks to the technologies uh, that we've got. So most people who come from an intelligence background, unless they're coming from the NSA, don't understand technology all that well, uh, right? So you say, uh, most, what we like to say is most people have one of two weapons. They've either got a gun or a keyboard, but they can't be equally good with both. Uh, through some circumstances that, that I happened to, to find myself in, uh, I was offered the opportunity to get equally good with both. So we've, we've taken that methodology of both that boots on the ground counterintelligence methodology and the cyber counterintelligence methodology and married them together into one platform primarily driven to technology by technology so we can do what others have done before it's just we're we're doing it better faster um and economies of scale cheaper oh that's very interesting so like maybe like a hypothetical example brand name vc firm out in silicon valley like thinks they have potentially have the next Airbnb or Uber, they'll call you up and call Verify up and say, hey, can you conduct diligence on this on this company and on these founders to see if this is legit for us? That's exactly what happens. Uh, and many venture firms, we are just part of their process, just part of their standard due diligence process. Their associates and their partners are looking for deals. Once the GPs agrees that a, a deal is good, then uh, as that partner is doing their due diligence, they just order a verify report on on the founders. So it, it's a it's a pretty simple process. And, and we've been able to get that process and distill it down to a simplified process so that it, it makes it really easy. And it works within their deal flow. Instead of traditionally, what would happen is they would order these reports and then they would have to wait for weeks, sometimes months, in order to get all the information back in order to feel good about the deal. They get our reports back while they're still waiting on, on other pieces so it doesn't interrupt their deal flow. Interesting. Why, like, why should a company hire Verify when searching for like, their next big hire or making this next big investment instead of doing like, the simple background check? interviews and references and, and so on? Because a background check only tells you what somebody got caught doing. Interviewing references, uh, if you ask me for references, I'm gonna give you the people who are gonna give me the best, uh, uh, right, the best review. And then if you say, <laughs> right. oh, well, but then we ask them for somebody else. Okay, and those people are also gonna give me good reviews, right? And oh, so what you're doing yeah. is you're essentially just, you're, you're putting the vetting and due diligence process for that person on that person. So instead, you want to you want to do, look at it like a personnel audit, right? Disinterested third party, just right. verifying okay. the facts in front of them, and either those facts can or cannot be verified. And a great example is um, we had somebody who uh, was was claiming a fraudulent background and to a, a, a top tier B, uh, VC firm, and that top tier VC firm ended up getting scammed out of uh, double digit millions of dollars 
all based on a fraudulent resume. So what, what is that, you know, our price points start at $437. What is a $437 verify report worth to that VC firm, you know, half a decade ago, about 18 to $20 million. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> that's, that's why. And, and, and what you'd find is, is when you start talking to companies, you talk to CEOs, you talk to venture firms, banks, private equity firms, they all have a story to tell. They don't really tell them publicly, but you start talking to them about fraud. They'll, they'll, the, the, oh yeah, this one time stories start coming out pretty rapidly. And we have yet to find a story that we, uh, that we couldn't have prevented. And, and now that we've been in business long enough, we have lots of examples of, of frauds that we actually have prevented, but it's not even the fraud piece. It's also what is, what, what is, what baggage is somebody bringing with them? Uh, an example of that is we had a, we had an investment firm that was interested in, uh, in participating in a priced round with a uh, biometrics company. And it turned out, so the technology was amazing. It was world-class technology. Uh, the company was good. The people were who they said they were, right? There was, there was no fraud, but they were hiding the fact that the founder had actually been uh, prosecuted for shooting up a synagogue uh, when, he was, when he was younger. Uh, and they were uh, predominantly white supremacists in the, uh, in the C-suite. Now, there's nothing illegal about being a white supremacist, unfortunately. However, uh, that can do some considerable brand damage. And so our client uh, chose not to invest in that firm. And eight months later, the, the details around the founders of these companies uh, at and their, their lead investors all being white supremacists actually came out in, I believe it was the Washington post. Uh, and that was obviously, um, a big, uh, cataclysmic event for that company. They lost two and a half million dollars in contracts in a single day and over $20 million in contracts in, in the first month. So wow. our, our client who spent money on verify reports doing, doing their personnel due diligence, as well as the financial due diligence, uh, they they were able to uh, to not lose any money, but all those other investors uh, lost some pretty considerable amounts. Wow! And how how much how much did that cost the investment firm to use to get that verified report? That was seventeen hundred and fifty dollar report. Well, well worth it. <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. Uh, that's that's very yeah. interesting. So. Uh, an ounce of prevention is truly better than a pound of cure. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I found it also particularly interesting since I used to work in, um, in private equity. So in go, going back to the, the, res, the fraudulent resume example, um, like, how, like how were they scammed from, from that resume? Like was it a, the resume of like, a, a found, like the founder of the company that mm-hmm. is, okay. Yeah. And that, and you'd be surprised that resume fraud is actually the most common form of fraud because when you're investing in somebody, I mean, you, you know, from your background, when you're investing in somebody, you're, you're investing in an idea, right? Is it an idea? Does it have a market size that is capable of, of 
uh, you know, growing the company to the, the level that they want to grow to. But then the biggest gamble that investors are making is, can this person pull it off? And how are you making that decision? You're making that decision based on what they did in the past. So they went to this university, they got this degree, they then worked in this industry, uh, and then they noticed a, a market opportunity and they seized that market opportunity. And now they're in front of me asking for money in order to be able to, to build a company around it. Well, if they honestly did go to MIT and they obviously do have that master's in computer science and they are doing a tech-based company, well then investing in them probably makes sense. However, if they are saying they did, but they didn't actually do any of those things, then you would make a completely different investment decision. Right. So right. while past performance does not guarantee uh, future performance, it's a darn good indicator of it. Right, right, for sure. And that's what we do is we verify that past performance to make sure that it's legitimate. But then in the case of these white supremacists, we also go one step further to check the reputation to make sure that there isn't something that they're not telling you, that they're not disclosing to you, which would probably cause you to, to make a different decision. Right. Huh, that, that's very interesting. And what are some of the biggest made challenges facing Verify as you look to grow and scale over the coming years? We, uh, our market is everybody who wants to invest in somebody or hire somebody. So really our biggest challenge is getting a razor sharp focus on the industries that we're, uh, you know, that we're specifically marketing to and, and, cutting out business that, you know, business we don't want because our, our, our problem is not, is not finding a good product market fit. Our problem is the market is so massive that we have to really focus our technology on being able to serve the markets uh, that, that we're good at. Right. Yeah. It sounds like VC would be kind of right in the wheelhouse, just considering that, that job and investing in companies that, like seed stage companies that are just like a founding team and just like an idea or something like that, or right. just a little bit bigger would be perfect. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. We're actually uh, partnered with the angel capital association uh, as their preferred provider of services, because, you know, at the, at the angel investor level, it's even more important. Uh, so really it's, it's the, uh, you know, angel investors, it's the, it's the venture capital firms, the private equity firms, the family offices, many of whom are actually acting as uh, really like little mini VC firms at this point. They don't, don't right. necessarily have the infrastructure behind them. Uh, and then also banks. Uh, we've got some rather large banks that deal almost exclusively in commercial transactions. You know, we're doing really big real estate deals. Uh, and, and we do, I mean, we actually work with them where every single deal they do uh, they get a report at some level on on the person they're looking at cutting a very large check to. Interesting. And what's your ultimate vision for Verify? The vision for Verify is a world without fraud. That's what we're that's what we're pushing towards. Also very audacious. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, we're. Uh, uh, I, I like to. Uh, 
quote the Google founders and say that, you know, we, we, we also have a healthy disregard for the impossible. Love it. I love it. Awesome. And then getting to these last handful of questions here, let's say we meet again on the street in five years. What would you want to be telling me that you've accomplished or created since this conversation? It could be personally or professionally. We've reduced in five years uh, from, from this day right now, we've reduced the human trafficking market in the United States by 40%. We're working with over 240 law enforcement uh, organizations across the globe. And the, uh, and for, for verify would be to have every venture capital firm in the United States using our services to prevent the next Theranos. Awesome. What does your daily routine look like? <laughs> uh, it, it requires a high tolerance for pain. Uh, <laughs> so my daily routine is, you know, up at five thirty and did some PT and uh, sometimes that's literal physical therapy. Sometimes it's just, you know, uh, physical training in the garage gym and then to work usually by seven. And uh, I go home at six, spend some time with my kids and my wife and my wife usually uh, clocks in a little bit early and then I'm on emails until 10.30 or 11 and back at it the next day. So kind of lather, lather, rinse, repeat six days a week. Yep. Awesome. And uh, as is the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? So whether, whether I always realized it or not, uh, God has been the force driving me, right? So I wouldn't necessarily say it's a, I am a, 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 it's a driving force that I've been reaching for. It's been a force that's been pushing me. I mean, when you look at the things that I've been incredibly blessed to have done, you know, pararescue, uh, 8% chance that I would make it into pararescue. Yet for some reason, uh, I was, you know, I got to stand on the stage and don that beret, um, you know, 1% chance that I would get into the CIA. And yet for some reason, you know, I end up with that blue badge. Uh, you know, uh, I've been lucky enough to attend Harvard. Uh, right. So, so, you know, being an, an Ivy League guy, right, 5% chance that that happens. So when you start adding this all up and you start doing the, the math, the statistical improbability of pulling any of this off becomes pretty, uh, pretty impossible. And anybody who knows me will tell you I'm a solid B player, right? <laughs> you know, I was never the like... Never the smartest guy, never the strongest guy, never the never the the fastest guy. You know, I could usually hold my own um, to a certain extent, but but just a just a solid B player. So how does a solid B player end up in in all of these uh, major league teams it, throughout multiple sports? Well, I'll tell you why. I mean, there, there's, there's really only one, only one example of that. And that's, you know, God is pushing me in the direction that he wants me to go. And even though sometimes I would fight it tooth and nail, uh, eventually once I gave in, it just, it just, it just all happened. Interesting. That's an interesting answer. Was it ever like, did you ever have like a, was it ever like a chip on your shoulder? Like for always being kind of that B player that you think maybe was part of that too? Or no, no, 
I, I quite frankly, have just never really cared what other people's opinions were. Uh, these were things, you know, if I would have listened to anybody, I never would have made it into pararescue. If I would have listened to people around me, I never would have made it to the into the CIA. If I would have listened, I never would have made it into Harvard. I never would have uh, started Deliver Fund in the first place. Uh, so, so I, it's not. I wouldn't call it a chip on my shoulder by any means, just because I just haven't cared. There's just been a, a very clear mission in front of me, and I just keep my head down and press forward towards that mission. And, right. and really, we have a duty to do that. I mean, you know, to to all of us, we are, you know, we are ordained with with skills and talent and resources. And then the question becomes, what do you do with that? Well, I'm not really interested in having the best golf game or being the fastest shot on the range uh, or being able to do, you know, the CrossFit wad the fastest. Um, there are other people who've been called to do that stuff. My, my mission that has been assigned to me is to fight fraud and, and to fight human trafficking. And so that's what I'm doing and that's what I'm executing on. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. And then lastly here, before we wrap up, what parting words of wisdom or advice around like how to handle a big decision would you like to leave the people listening, just considering your background? You have to decide before any big decision is, is, is going to happen. You have to decide what your strategy for deciding is. So knowing and assuming that there is a big decision somewhere in your future, you have to decide now in a period of calm what the strategy for making that decision is going to be, what the data points you're going to consider, and more importantly, the data points you are not going to consider, the opinions you're going to consider, and the, and the opinions you are not going to consider when making decisions. Uh, and getting that strategy down so that when you are forced with that decision, which usually comes out of the blue, you can pull that strategy off the shelf, open it up, and and get to the work of making the decision. Awesome. I like it. It's a great place to end. Nick, thanks for coming to the show. This was great. I enjoyed it. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Where can people go to find you online and learn more about Deliver Fund and, and Verify? So on social media, you can find uh, Deliver Fund uh, at Deliver Fund or at DeliverFund.com. Uh, you can find me personally on social media at Deliver Fund Nick. That's N-I-C. And uh, then you can find me. The Really the only platform I'm active on is LinkedIn. And I'm just uh, Nick McKinley uh, on, on LinkedIn. It would be pretty clear who I am. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, chaserosa.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.